0: You're listening to a 58 Ember production. Hey, welcome to Here For It. I'm your host, Erica Muller. Each week, we'll be talking all things life, fashion and beauty, personal development, and probably some pop culture along the way as well. Here For It is your weekly space to get grounded, regroup, and be inspired to live your best life because really, we're all figuring it out as we go. And I'm so here for it. (laughs) Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Here For It. My name is Erica Muller. For anyone new around here, welcome. I am very happy to have you. I was introduced to today's guest earlier this summer, and I very quickly binged a lot of her content. Natalie Kovorik is a pharmacist, rancher, and co-host of the Discover Ag podcast, and she is on a mission to help educate consumers on the food and agriculture space and the way in which she approaches this i find to be very very cool i think it's rare to get a female millennial perspective of agriculture and i feel like she just gets it in talking to her she makes everything so easy to understand and i really appreciate that i find it incredibly difficult and honestly impossible to be fully informed on absolutely every area of life i mean if you think about it for a second you have your dentist telling you how to take care of your teeth and then you go to the dermatologist and they're telling you xyz about your skin and this for exercise and this for nutrition and this for living a non-toxic life and the list just goes on and on and on and it can be incredibly overwhelming to think about all the areas we are being told what and how to do and the time and resources it takes to do due diligence about those things. And Natalie's approach to helping bring information to the average consumer about your food is done in such a fun and easy to understand way. I have a soft spot in my heart for farming and agriculture because I grew up around it. A lot of people I went to high school with have now taken over their family farm one of the things that natalie and i touch on in this episode is generational farming and what that looks like and how we've kind of become more removed from knowing people in agriculture than we used to i grew up hearing a lot of stories from my mom about visiting her aunts and uncles on their farms and how those farms have now been passed down to the next generation And frequently when I talk to someone who has only ever lived in big cities, they find out that I grew up in a really small town and it's almost like they can't even believe it. And as someone who now lives in a big city and has for quite a while, I understand why. So if you're like me at all, and if you've ever gotten overwhelmed at the grocery store trying to figure out what the best package of chicken or ground beef to buy is, or if you've seen a fear-inducing headline around food, you're in luck because Natalie is walking us through all of it. We also talked about ranch life and why she's so content in it, social media, voting with your dollars and the treatment of animals on farms, cattle ranching, bull sales, and overall connecting consumers with their food. I walked away from this conversation with Natalie feeling incredibly hopeful about our food system. She got rid of a lot of underlying fears I've had that have come about because of misleading headlines. And at the end of the day, all we have is our health and Natalie is out here advocating for that. So with that, let's jump into this episode and here is Natalie. If I'm not mistaken. Your Instagram bio used to say where Yellowstone meets Ralph Lauren.
1: It did used to say that.
0: Where did you come up with that? I love that so much.
1: Oh, I feel like I have always tried to, as everyone does, you know, tweak the special bio. You know, you only have so many characters to really represent your page. Um, And I don't know. I think I just was trying to figure out how to, effectively communicate in very few words, this kind of Western agriculture, ranching, farming lifestyle I live, but not make it sound like the stereotypical ranching that everyone thinks of. And so I don't even know how it came to me, but um, I thought, well, I'll add in and meld, you know, the fashion side of myself that I love. And
0: I came up with Yellowstone and Ralph Lauren. I feel like you've really mastered romanticizing your life? At least that's how it appears from the outside.
1: Yeah, I would say possibly I have. I think I, have I didn't realize this, but I think I've always kind of maybe done that unintentionally. I can remember, you know, always being infatuated with music and how it emotionally takes you places. And I, sometimes I can listen to songs and I can see things that I would want to like pair with that music. And so when I started sharing online, I didn't intentionally think I would share to, to do those things that have always kind of been part of my personality. But once I was, when you go to make, create, create content, it just kind of naturally came out of me. And so I did tend to lead towards that. Like you said, that romanticizing that, you know, picturesque view um, that I think exists in the Western lifestyle just isn't always maybe portrayed or shown.
0: When did sharing agriculture specifically on social media kind of become the plan? Because I scrolled back through your Instagram and the way that you used to post was so sweet and so intimate. I felt like I was really getting this inside glimpse into something that was really personal and private. Like they felt like love letters to yourself and to your family
1: Yeah, it was. I started using chat books, which I think is still like a fairly common company. But I used them for a long time with my son to post photos of us. And then, obviously, when I got married, um, I did the same thing. And I would pair a picture and then, like you said, write a little blurb because when you print out the chat book, you can put something with it. And I thought, oh, well, this is a really easy way to leave um, my thoughts and pieces of myself and um, for my children to eventually have one day. And then I started, uh, like you said, I transitioned into this influencing space. And um, the more and more followers I got, like you kind of said, I think I felt like that was almost too personal anymore to kind of stick with it. I know people loved that portion of my Instagram. It was actually I was still doing that. I was bigger on YouTube for a while and I have since deleted my YouTube page, uh, which we could get into later. But, um, so I know there was a big portion of, um, followers that still love to watch our family on YouTube and then come over and kind of get those, like you said, little love letter pieces I would write on my Instagram. But I think it just came to a point where I had so many followers that it just no longer felt like those were things I wanted to write as a mother. Um, I've had to navigate the waters of what it is like to share for other people who don't necessarily always have an opinion. And my older child does. And so I've always been really conscientious of what I have shared about him. Um, But I think when they're babies, you don't think about it very much. And then as my middle grew and I was kind of balancing the thoughts I had with my teenager about exposing him and things I would say about him, I realized It shouldn't really be that different about how I treat Tad, our oldest, as opposed to Jax and Rue. And so, yeah, I just kind of naturally, I guess, fell out of that place of intimate um, intimacy, I guess, on social media into more like, you know, influencing, which probably isn't the best always.
0: Did you, in that transition, were you like, I want to lean into that fashion side first, or were you like, I want to lean more into agriculture or this lifestyle? Like what, how did you lean into that?
1: Yes, it was definitely actually fashion. I wanted to, again, as you mentioned, showcase that beautiful side of agriculture, uh, that I don't think we initially associate like farming and farmers with pretty, and I've always been drawn to um, fashion and kind of art and expressing yourself through that. And so it was a very natural meld for me because I was sharing before reels were a theme, right? So it was mm-hmm. an entire photo based platform. So it was very natural for me to um, design a whole photo shoot around um, a really beautiful place on our ranch, you know, out a pasture on a horseback and then try and incorporate some of my fashion. And so I started that way. And then somewhere along the way, when you're raised in agriculture, you don't realize that not everyone is. I mean, I know that sounds so silly, (laughs) but I grew up in, you know, small town Montana. And so maybe not every single person farmed and ranch, but every single person was much more, you know, associated and familiar with it. And I went to school in Montana and I also went to college in Washington state, which is a pretty ag based school. And I wasn't, I didn't go to college for agriculture. So I don't think I was like trying intently paying attention to like who knew about ag and who didn't because I actually went to Mm -hmm. school for pharmacy So transitioning from like everyone, you know, neighbors, friends, family being in agriculture to kind of ag-based schools, but focusing more on, you know, pharmacy, it wasn't honestly until I got online that I was like, oh my gosh, people have never met a farmer or rancher or people don't know, you know, how food is raised. And so when I started growing people based around that like romanticized, you know, Western fashion portrayal. I got questions, um, curiosity around ag, and then I also get a lot of negativity um, and kind of scrutiny around the industry. And so that's when I kind of unintentionally shifted towards more like education and information about agriculture and less away from, I think, that creativity space I had. And now I'm kind of actually shifting back out of the education again and trying to find my place with like a more creative space with it.
0: Wait, I'm really curious. How did you decide you wanted to get into pharmaceuticals? My oldest sister is a
1: pharmacist and my parents, you know, ag is typically, whether you're a rancher or a farmer, generational, you know, you don't start a ranch, work on a ranch and then like sell it. <laughs> you start a ranch, work on a ranch, and then, you know, the next generation behind you takes over it. And my parents had four daughters and not that they ever thought four girls couldn't run a ranch. It wasn't ever like sexist like that. I think they wanted to give us the gift of choice because sometimes when you are raised in a ranching and farming family, you can find yourself ranching and farming later in life out of obligation to be that next generation to carry it on. And I don't think my parents wanted that. I think they wanted to know that if any of their daughters came back to the ranch, it was by choice. And so they made Mm -hmm. all of us go to college for something that was non-ag related. Mm -hmm. And my oldest sister chose pharmacy. And I just saw how well it worked for her life. I mean, it, you know, it's a great profession. That's a great job for a woman. Um, and I was a single mom at the time. So I wanted something that I could really stand on my own and live a certain lifestyle financially that I wanted and was used to. And it's also a career that you get to leave at work, which is really, you know, great again from being like a female and a mother. And so, I just ended up choosing pharmacy cause my oldest sister was in it. And then thankfully I ended up really enjoying it. I practiced pharmacy all the way up. I was a full-time pharmacist when I met my husband. And then um, I practiced part-time for the first couple of years here on the ranch. And then when my social media, when I decided to make it a business and earn like income from it, um, I ended up stepping away from pharmacy then. And now I just kind of fill in as needed at our local pharmacies.
0: I think that's so cool. I love that your parents like encouraged you I feel like I consider myself to be ag adjacent. I grew up in a really small town in Colorado. There was a lot of farming and agriculture that was like heavily prevalent in the community. Um, FFA was really big in my high school. There was 4-H. I remember always going to the rodeo and the fair and all this stuff. And so while I was never in it myself, it was around me so much that I feel like it imprinted into who I am. And so I kind of understand what you mean of like, people don't always understand what, what it's like to know somebody who has a farm or a ranch or, um, raise cattle. And so, I love that you kind of have both of those perspectives.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, And like
0: you said, honestly, I
1: didn't grow up like a major ad kid either. Like I wasn't a part of FFA. Um, I didn't get my degree in it either. And so coming back to the ranch is actually a huge surprise for me because we do live a different lifestyle that you're a little bit married to your profession. It's like there's another person in, in your marriage. And it's, you know, uh, stressful and financially, um, very large, uh, person that's a part of your, um, marriage. And so when I remember when I met my husband, I thought I had to have like kind of a serious conversation with myself, but I was like, do, you know, do I really want to go back to agriculture? Do I really want to be married to it? You know, I had a wonderful childhood growing up on a ranch and, Um, you know, my parents ranch is, uh, you know, successful from the standpoint that I didn't have like a negative relationship with agriculture. But, um, I remember thinking like, do I want to be, you know, married to someone who can't potentially leave the ranch, you know, 365 days of the year, or just, you know, has something that they're thinking about all the time. I mean, it's just a little bit different than, you know, marrying like someone that, you know, goes to a nine to five job. And, um, I was a little nervous about it, honestly, you know, getting back, I think to that lifestyle, but now, now that I'm back here, I just, um, so funny. I'm like, thank goodness, you know, things work out the way they do. Cause I, I think I am my most content truly when I am, um, kind of more in a rural lifestyle and living this way we do. And so I think I'm a lot happier of a person than I could be if I had maybe chosen like different paths in my life.
0: When you were having that conversation with yourself of like, do I want this? What made you lean into it?
1: Honestly, my husband, (laughs) so I, uh, was, uh, 20, I had originally met my husband when we were 27. He, um, was actually up at our family bull sale, which sounds so weird, but when you're in a certain part of the cattle industry, um, that my family was, what we do is we raise bulls or males, um, that other Ranchers buy for like the genetics, you know. So every single year we have a bull sale where people literally come and they buy a bull, which sounds so weird if you are not in the industry, but it's very common if you are a rancher. And so he was up visiting our, you know, family bull sale and we met there. And then we talked a little bit, but he never, you know, got my number. He was going to look me up online, which is hilarious because I am like now everywhere online. But at the time I was only on Instagram personally, so he couldn't find me anywhere. (laughs) So he had to wait a whole year to come back to another bull sale. And then he got my number that year. And, you know, I had been through different relationships in my life um, that were serious, that taught me a lot about what I wanted and truly knew I needed in a spouse, not things you think or things you're maybe like you know, attracted to, you know, in the first six months or whatever, I had just learned a lot through past relations of like, okay, this is, if I'm going to get married and have a serious relationship, um, this is what I'm going to need in a partner. And it was so funny because I had actually entered a period where I was like, I think I'm okay not getting married, you know, and I had a very good lifestyle and had a good job and I had a really good, you know, friend community around me where I was living in Montana and my family was obviously close. And so I was just very, very content. And I was like, you know, I think I'm actually okay if I don't end up getting married. And that is when my husband came to my life and he checked all those boxes of like intelligent and smart and funny and, you know, successful and all these different things that I knew were important to me. And so I think I thought as much as I was afraid of, you know, re-stepping back into agriculture and ranching, I was more afraid of not seeing what him and I could be. And I just Mm -hmm. knew you don't ask a rancher to not be a rancher, you know, like Luke wasn't going to sell his cattle and his land and move to Montana. And I knew if we were going to be together, it was me who was going to have to change my life.
0: And so it almost became,
1: um, not a choice anymore. It was just like, okay, well, I guess this is what I do.
0: I know there's obviously a lot of different parts to agriculture, the way that your family worked in agriculture. Is it similar to the, to what you do now and what Luke was doing at the time? Partly. Um, So
1: I grew up fourth generation and my husband grew up fifth generation. So that means that, you know, before us, there was a lot of family members that had established the ranches we were um, living on. And the operation my husband and I are on, though, is first generation. And so... um, to make it an agriculture, which is, um, very capital intensive, um, you know, from an equipment standpoint, a Mm -hmm. land standpoint, like it, it takes a lot of capital to break into it, to be a first generation. Um, my husband does a lot of different things or did at the very beginning to like cash flow and to make that work. Um, and I don't think people know this about the cattle industry because why would they right? but it is, um, very segmented. So you you can do different things. You can raise cattle and it can look different from like the rancher next to you because there Mm -hmm. are, there is the registered sector, which is what I talked about where you're selling genetics. There is the commercial sector, which is kind of one of the main things my husband does. There's what's called like a backgrounding and a feedlot. And so there's all these different areas you can be involved in to raise cattle that all have to like work together and come together to eventually go from like an animal out of pasture to like meat on a plate. And so I would say, you know, circling back to what you asked me, the main thing we do here on our operation is different from where I grew up. But one of the things my husband is most passionate about is the genetics of cattle. And so we are starting our own kind of small registered operation, which
0: would be the exact
1: same of what I grew up on.
0: So what does that mean? The genetics? What do you do with the genetics when you have these bulls?
1: Yeah, so you're just raising for certain qualities, which again sounds so bizarre. But you know, for a cow to have a calf, you want a certain type of birth weight. Like you don't want a really small calf, and you don't want like a really big calf. You know, and there's all these different things that go into like utter quality. Like literally, ranchers care about how well a cow milks, right? And so you can test and get genetics around like how good of an utter they are, how good of a mother they'll be. Um, like feet is really important. You know, cattle, you want hooves a certain way. So there's all these, I mean, there's, they're called EPDs and there's all these things you can gather information on cattle to talk about basically how good a cow female will be and how good a male bull will be. And so when you're in the registered business, um, that's what you care about. You care about those genetics and you breed for certain things that you think are important that other people would want to buy and then you know, genetically insert those traits into their operation. And so it's kind of weird and goofy, but my husband is just obsessed. Like there's literally what are called bull catalogs where you will flip through like hundreds and hundreds of pages of bulls to buy and you'll read about all these EPDs. And I want to burn them all the moment they come (laughs) into the house. And my husband just sits down like it's, you know, The latest playboy. Like he just can't get enough of like reading about these bulls and the information that come with them. And so it is very interesting. And again, I grew up in that. And so I didn't really realize how odd it is, but, um, yeah, that's one of the things a a rancher can care about is, um, all of those tiny little things you think about when it comes to an animal.
0: It kind of sounds to me like the cattle equivalent of, when somebody wants a specific breed of a dog, like you want a purebred beagle and it has to look exactly like this. And the tail is like this. Um, obviously you're not then like eating a dog, but no, but it's kind of like the same, (laughs) it's such a good
1: way to think of it though.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, when you
1: asked what the main portion of my husband's operation, you guys are going to learn another term. It's called a cow calf. And that is where the beef in grocery stores and restaurants comes from from our nation. So, across our nation, there are a plethora. I think it's over seven hundred thousand um, families that own a cow calf operation. And what we're doing is we're raising up a calf um, to be bought and sold. By typically, if it's conventional, um, they'll go to a feedlot, which will then um, raise them until the point when a processor could buy them. So, um, those are what are being entered into the food supply chain. Um, you know, those bulls or females that are being bred for the genetics, um, their role is to more, um, again, offer better genetics for producers across the nation. So they will eventually enter the supply food chain at the end of, you know, their time, but for their, they're there for 10, 15, whatever years it is, um, for their genetics more than they are to be entered into the food supply chain.
0: Okay, that makes so much sense. So now that you touched on grocery store, I want to lean into that for yeah. a second because <laughs> I this is something that I've always had a question about and I feel like I can never really find an answer. One, I feel like there's so much to the food and agriculture space that as just a normal consumer, it's like we don't, I'm not being given this information all the time. And I think you have to do a lot of due diligence. Um but even that can feel hard. But so if I'm going to the grocery store and let's say I am I need to buy ground beef or a steak or something, how do I know what to buy? Like, do I know that this package is coming from a small family farm? Is it actually grass fed? Is that actually important? Like I have no idea what I actually need to buy.
1: Yes. So I was listening to a podcast, Joe Rogan actually, and he had on a female and they were talking about the seafood industry and he asked her the same thing like how do i you know best put my money into know what i'm buying at the fish at the grocery store mm-hmm. and she said something i think is really really important when it comes to this conversation about stepping foot into the grocery store and deciding how you guys want to vote cuz that's really what you're doing right you're voting totally. with your dollars about how our food industry is she said tell me what you care about most and i will tell you how to spend your dollar so mm-hmm. you touched on a couple with different things. Like, do I care that this is a quote unquote, small family farm? If that's what you want to put your money to, then, you know, there's a certain way to buy beef. Do you care? You touched on like grass fed, you know, do you, do you want to talk about like, is nutrition really important to you? You know, then that's going to look a little bit different of how you're going to, to buy your beef. And so I think the first thing you should ask yourself is like, what's most important to you? Is it a budget? Then I'm going to tell you to buy again, something a little bit different than the person's like, I care about the environment and sustainability. Like, I think you really, if you want to be powerful with your dollars and know that you're spending them in a way that's important to you, I think you have to kind of do that connection to you. And maybe you don't care, then great. Just go in and buy any package. If you're like, I, I just really care about like getting protein. I'm like, great. All, you know, beef, all protein is going to be the same when it comes to to beef at the grocery store versus like direct to consumer versus, you know, grass fed grain finished. And so it's really hard for me to like tell people like this is the perfect thing to look for because I think people care about different things. Mm-hmm. I will say that if you care the most about your food, you're very in touch with what is on your plate. You want to know who raised it. You want to be able to ask specific questions around it. Seek out a ranch or farmer to buy from with online and social media, it is so easy to do that. Now I promise you, you may think that I say that and you're like, I don't even know how to do that. All you have to do in is like type in your area and probably like be for rancher in Google. And I promise you something will pop up fairly close that you could buy direct to consumer. You could go to a farmer's market. You could literally search online. There's a ton of ranchers that ship nationwide. So you don't even have to find a person in your area anymore. You could order, I mean, if you're in Florida, you could order from, you know, Alabama, like wherever. New York, I'm sure there's someone in New York or a neighboring state. Like you can order from wherever. So if you care the most about your food and you have access to money to spend that way, I say always go direct to consumer because then you can be really reassured that I know who raised it. I get to watch that most of those ranchers and farmers are sharing online now, so you can literally watch them every single day, like what they're doing on their operation, and you can have that intimate connection you want with your food very easily. Um, I will say our family, as um, I mentioned, we are a cow calf operation. Our calves are being bought by, you know, local feedlots and they're entering into feedlots. And then, you know, one of the big four packaging plants is then buying those and putting them in the grocery store. And I get over and over again on my social media channel. If I knew that all ranchers and farmers cared for their cattle or had a ranch like yours, I would buy from the grocery store my cattle go to the grocery store. So I don't ever want anyone listening to feel like they can't get good quality meat from the grocery store either. I will say to make this the longest answer in the world, one of the biggest differences about grocery store beef versus directly from a rancher or farmer, or, you know, maybe like, um, a what's that subscription? Um, Oh, like butcher box or something. Yes. Butcher box or buying like a butcher box. One of the big differences is going to be the ground beef. Um, so ground beef in a grocery store is actually a combination of like, I don't even know how many animals, right? Like they're just taking ground beef from here, ground beef from there. And they're putting all different animal ground beef together. I mean, they're all cows, but it's going to be like, Oh, you know, five, 10, 15 cows. Yes. So it's just a bunch of animals combined together. But the same, it's not like Sorry, not like, not like cow pork or pig chicken pig or turkey. And, okay. <laughs> no, 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 it's all cows, but it is multiple cows. And the other thing, a lot of grocery store beef does because we are a nation that likes lean beef, right? Like sometimes people go and they want to buy like 85, 15 or 90, 10, or like what 80, 20 know, whatever that looks like, right? We have preferences and choices in America and that's great. We import a lot of our animals. When people say like we import beef and they get scared about that, we're not importing beef for like steaks and roasts. We are importing lean animals to mix into our ground beef to get that lean quality because we just don't have the lean animals. So that is what a grocery store beef is going to be. It's going to be, you know, a few different cows mixed together, probably with imported trimmings from, you know, Mexico or Canada. Canada is like one of our biggest, I would say, probably importers. We work like cattle with them a lot. So you would have maybe a Canada cow and that's what is getting to be your hamburger. If you order directly from a rancher, it is one cow, it is that cow's, you know, ground beef is nothing's been mixed into it. Like the, I mean, you could probably talk to the butcher to see how, if you're asking for it to be really lean, what they're doing to like kind of meld into that or what they're, you know, how that process works at the butcher. But I would say that's one of the huge differences is the ground beef, um, because you can get non-US beef and it can be a mix of different, um, you know, numbers of cows versus where you would never get that direct to consumer.
0: Is that bad to have multiple I, cows in one package? You know, I don't think so. I toured a
1: Cargill plant here in Nebraska. Um, and obviously they're like taking tours through, so, yeah. you know, you can undertake that with a grain of salt. Um, but I was really impressed with the cleanliness, the quality of that package plant. Um and I do think that's one thing that comes with scale, right? Like a lot of times we're afraid of big, but big does good well, right? They do efficiency well, they do cleanliness well, they have policies in place, they have different things that maybe your mom-pop shop, you know, store down the road doesn't have USDA, FDA coming to regulate them like a large, you know, processing plant would. And so, I know we can be afraid of big, but sometimes big does things well. And so mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think, again, you have to be afraid of grocery store and that mix. I just think it matters what you care about. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, it's, it's kind of the same thing with grain finished versus grass finished. I mean, I have always grown up on fat cattle that were finished um, with corn at the end of their life. So something that not a lot of people know is that um, a grass finished cow will eat grass its entire life. And then when you think of like a grocery store beef or a conventional or grain finished, like whatever people call it, corn fed that doesn't mean they got that the entire life actually for two thirds of their life. All they got was milk and grass from their mama, just as a grass finished cow would. It's really those last few months in the feedlot that they got a different diet. Um, and I've always personally grown up on that. I don't have a fear around corn finished cattle, conventional cattle. Um, and some people do, some people want to have grass finished their entire life. So again, it really matters like what you care about most and how you want to put the dollars that you have that are expendable towards food, um, to them. I will say like, if you go to the grocery store, don't pay for like all natural beef. Like that's a, not even a regulated claim. Anyone could just put all natural on there. It doesn't matter. Like any of those claims that are like, you kind of said earlier, like small family farm, independent farms, like none of those are regulated by the USDA. I don't even know what they mean. They're basically just to convince you guys that like paint a picture in your head that like, this is, you know, makes you feel good and wholesome, right? Mm-hmm. The labels you could pay attention to are organic. That is, you know, federally regulated. Um, the grass finished is federally regulated. So you could look into that label if you want, um, all animals go through a antibiotic withdrawal. Um, it's 30 days at the processing plant and then they have to be tested before they leave. So that there's no traces that show up. If there are traces of antibiotics, they get pulled. Um, and honestly, if you're a feedlot that has multiple pulls, like a feedlot kept putting in cattle that had antibiotic residue over and over again, They go on a blacklist and processing plans won't buy from that feedlot anymore. So there's a lot of checks and balances to make sure that like antibiotics don't end up in there. So some of those labels, I just I wouldn't pay for a label at the grocery store. I would pay for direct-to-consumer beef. You know, that's where I put my money instead of like looking for a certain label and paying $2 more because it said all natural beef. Like that's not gonna do anything at the end of the day. It's the same beef in the package next to it that was $2 cheaper.
0: Thank you for explaining that. I feel like It's just so confusing as a consumer to be like, I don't know what I'm actually buying.
1: My husband hates chicken. It's like (laughs) his favorite food. And so I never buy chicken. And I went into the grocery store a couple months ago. I was actually down at a Whole Foods in Omaha. And so I was like, oh, well, this will be a good plate. I'll go in and get some chicken here, you know? And I was so overwhelmed and I'm in like agriculture, you know, but I was like, I don't know what any of these labels are. And I was, I got so overwhelmed. And then I realized if I didn't, wasn't involved in agriculture, like I was, my overwhelm would have turned to fear really quickly. And luckily I didn't move into fear because like I said, I have that connection with the industry that I kind of understand how some things are going. And I understand like marketing and greenwashing that I was able to kind of just stay in overwhelm and then like sort my way through the label that I wanted and the the package that I wanted. But it really made me realize how quickly a consumer that is really removed from food can go from overwhelm to fear. And that just like breaks my heart at the end of the day, because fear or food is so obviously important from like a physiological standpoint, Mm -hmm. but I think we often forget how emotional, you know, food is like, it is very, it can be tied to our heritage. It's tied to memories. Like it's like this nurturing thing, like it's so emotional. And so to, to know that something that like you depend on three times a day to like sustain your body, but you're also kind of like emotionally tied around it. You could feel so fearful of it. I I really hate it. Like our food system does have changes to make so that our consumers have less fear around food for sure.
0: I actually really love that you bring this up because I can relate to this on a pretty deep level. I was vegan for a number of years and it ultimately just wasn't really working for me nutrition wise. And so I had to start eating meat again. And the reason I had gone vegan in the first place was because I had gotten myself very worked up over the treatment of animals and things that I was seeing. And I I had this like immense guilt about eating an animal when I, when I came back to it. And so I was like, I have to do this for my health. This is a priority, but if I'm going to do it, I want to make sure that I'm, you know, buying the chicken that was had the best life or the cow, you know, and it's like the best (laughs) organic that I could. Um, but you go to the grocery store and I was just like, I don't know, that's the most expensive. I'm assuming it had the best life. Mm And it's like, you don't know. And it took me a really long time to get over that. And now I don't have that anymore. Um, And this was years ago, but it is very real because I feel like the messaging that is out there very often is these chickens are treated like shit and now you're Mm -hmm. eating them and that's in your body. And you just like, but I look at all the packages like you were saying, and I'm like, but I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, food
1: labeling, um, my co-host, for our podcast discover ag we're actually speaking on south by southwest about this because i think there is a huge problem with food labeling in our nation and it started out as like with really good intents. like you said like how do we tell a consumer that isn't on the ranch or farm give them the information they need oh a label that makes sense but we have so far gone from that we I mean, we're starting to label things for things that aren't in there, you know, right? Like non-GMO is literally on everything. And there's only like a handful of GMO things, but it's like, well, if I don't see the non-GMO, then I assume it's GMO. And if I don't see no antibiotics, then I assume antibiotics. And it's just really gotten to this terrible place. And I don't have the answer for it, but I think a lot of work needs to be done around labeling. And like you said, um, I will say it's very PR-ish. I know it's going to come out very PR-ish, but farmers and ranchers, really do care about their animals. Like if animal welfare is of concern to you, um, I'm not saying there's not bad apples in our industry. I mean, there's bad apples in every single industry. Right. But from both a business standpoint and a personal standpoint, it is in our best efforts as a rancher to really care about our animal, going back to the beef industry. One thing that's different about us is like pork and chicken, what's called vertically integrated and so that means like tyson we'll just use tyson because it's very common everyone can associate that tyson owns chicken from the very beginning the egg all the way to the very end the plant like it is owned by tyson and tyson alone and vertically integration in those industries pork and chicken is very very common vertical integration in the beef industry does not work i don't think we'll ever get there so like a cargill or JBS. I don't, know, I'm trying to think of like a, a major beef hacking plant that you guys would know. Those are two big ones, but they don't own the calf at the beginning, right? My husband and I do. Mm-hmm. So it's very segmented and it will never just the way cattle work. I just don't think a calf would ever be owned by a major player, like big food like that as it can be in, you know, pork and chicken. And so my husband and I, in order to literally make money, we have to have a good calf, right? Like feedlots mm-hmm. aren't going to buy a shitty calf, you know, like that is how we make our dollars saying like, we have a really well-raised healthy animal. Like a feedlot can recognize that unhealthy animal. And they're not going to want to buy that because then they, the feedlot has to sell theirs to the packing plant. So they can't have a shitty product either, which like it's hard to call an animal a product, but at the end yeah. of the day, that's what it is, right? So you have to think about how can I have the berry very best animal to be bought by the next stage of the the beef industry, right? So financially, my husband and I, we need a really healthy, well-raised calf in order to make the dollar meat at the end of the day. And then on top of that, why would I want to spend? You know, I am on our ranch 365 days, not all the time. I mean, we travel quite a bit, but you have to feed your animals. You know, every single day. Like I said, you're very tied to this lifestyle. So it's like, why would I invest all this time, this energy, this stress, this money? And not take care of my animal, you know, Mm -hmm. from a personal standpoint, it's like we, a lot of farmers and ranchers choose to be farmers and ranchers because they do love animals. They do love the outside. And so I think you have this medley of like, I want to be successful from a financial standpoint. And I want to be, you know, living this lifestyle where I get to spend my time around animals and outside. And at the end of that, I think comes out like a good rancher who has good animal welfare. Um, And so some of those documentaries and some of those information that comes out, we have to, I think, remember that there's usually an agenda behind them. And it usually does come from people that want or organizations that want animal agriculture to not exist anymore. So they're going to find the worst video they can, even if it's an outlier, they're going to interview the one person that can say something, even if that's the one person they could find. You know, I mean, those are crafted very intentionally i hate that they can even be called like documentaries on netflix because they're not documentaries they're films right they are films that were created for an agenda and so i know it's really hard to put that trust in our food system because again you're like this is very personal to me my nutrition is very personal to me you know what i'm eating is very personal to me and i would have an issue with that right like putting something so personal into the hands of people i don't even get to see or know um but i promise you that the majority of ranchers across the us are doing good things on their operations to have a good calf you know to, to create um really good animal welfare practices on their ranch
0: i think that's really good to know because like you mentioned these documentaries come out and you as a consumer it's very easy to be like oh somebody's putting out this information to help like i think we mm-hmm. all just kind of have this quality where it's like we we want to see the best in people so we assume that they're putting out information for the goodness of all and not realizing what you mentioned earlier you're voting with your dollars so if they you know Mm -hmm. what is the agenda behind it well and you don't have anything to compare
1: it to either right so you watch those films and you don't have anything to say like well that's not how it was on like the ranch I visited last week or you know the right. farm I saw two months ago you know like you have nothing to fact check that against um when you watch those documentaries and so I remember feeling that way when I watched Seaspiracy mm-hmm. I was like wait am I like should I not be eating fish like how does this work and then I had to like do my own work and like again I I knew it was coming from the creators of Cowspiracy and I knew how much bullshit was in that film that I was able to be like okay I can probably guess that a Large, large percentage of this isn't even fact-based, but like, again, that's because I had that knowledge base to come from. And when you're so removed, it's like, it's just so unfair, um, that misinformation like that can affect, um, people's lives, um, three times a day, potentially for, you know, the rest of their life.
0: So you have a podcast called discover ag that you host with Tara Vanderdussen. What made you want to start that podcast? Yeah. It's so funny because I had actually been asked to like start podcasts before. And I was like, what? No, like
1: I wouldn't have anything to say. (laughs) And now you like, can't shut me up on my podcast. (laughs) But, um, you know, I heard this, uh, line once I was listening to my grow. He's kind of one of my favorite people. Mm -hmm. And he said that the soundbite has become the enemy of conversation. And I thought that is so powerful. In today's society, um, I mean, I obviously love social media and I think there is an infinite amount of pros to how, you know, technologically advanced we are in society today. But one of the downfalls is we have started to take a headline as the article and we have started to take a reel or what is said in seven seconds as facts and information, right? Like everything has been condensed to a little bit of information that has become the entire source. And it really started to frustrate me when I saw that happening to food. Again, going back to how I know people are feeling in the grocery store and then seeing an article come out in New York Times talking about things in production agriculture that was written, you know, for better or worse by someone who lives in Upper East Side, New York, and has maybe never set foot on a farmer ranch, and maybe didn't even interview. Like a lot of times, you don't even see farmers or ranchers being interviewed in those articles. Um, I just got really frustrated, and I thought, "Gosh, how do we get so that farmers and ranchers' their voices are heard on these opinions about farming and ranching and food, whether it's for better or worse, whether it's to you know." agree with the article and say like, yeah, this, this happened. And this was really bad within the food and egg industry. And this is why, and this is what we need to change or whether it's like debunking it and saying, that's not even factual. Like this is the truth behind it. And this is what this really means. and kind of explaining it more. And so my, my podcast co-host and I had the idea to create this podcast and do just that. Like we, you know, Heard the toast, right? They're talking about articles, you know, the latest news and celebrity gossip, like all the headlines, and then they break them down. And we thought, why can't we do that with food? Like, why can't we just take a headline that's out there, a soundbite a reel, something that's going on, and break it down and give the news. And so that's what we do. We, um we take the top three, you know, trending, whatever was kind of the biggest thing in the news that week regarding around food and farming and then we kind of break it down and give you know our millennial female farming twist to it right because we want to use our expertise of our background but we don't want it to be boring and we don't want it to feel agish and so we really try and keep that like part of us like you said that like fashion fun female um kind of part of us that you would look at us and not even know we're farmers and ranchers um so we can kind of have that beautiful meld of like information and entertainment together
0: Why do you think there's so much misinformation or misconception about the agriculture industry?
1: You know, there's a statistic that says there's um, farmers and ranchers are less than 2% of the population. I think it's as low as like 1.5% now, which again, on one hand there's other industries that are like that too. Like, I don't you know know how many percentage are working in like the mining industry. Right. And yeah. that's where like electricity comes from, you know? And so as we progress through society, we have just um, whether again, good or bad, we have made it so that you Erica don't have to have a milk cow in your backyard, you know, to have milk. Like we have taken the, the jobs and we have offloaded them to, you know, efficiently run different sectors of the industries. But with that, you know, comes that disconnect. Right. And so, you know, three, four generations ago, everyone knew a farmer and rancher. Like if you you had a farm that you went and visited in the summer growing up, you know, like our grandparents and their grandparents, if they weren't raised on one, they probably went and visited one or they, you know, mm-hmm. spent some time around one. And nowadays, again, we're just, we don't have to think about how you know, you said it on a podcast a couple of weeks ago, we don't have to think about what it takes to flip our light switch up. You know, we don't have to think about what it takes to put melt in the carton. Um, and I just think that distance is being filled, you know, before it was kind of just a distance. And now I think that gap, that distance is being filled with like misinformation, fear, all of this kind of like negativity, um, instead of like stuff that could honestly like bridge the gap. I think we're getting things in there that are just making it like feel like food is further and further away from us. But I actually um you know, I am actually hopeful. I think there are people that think that if you think of a graph and like a 45 degree angle, I think there are people that think we're just going to get further and further away from our food. So now what they say you're three generations removed from food and pretty soon you'll be like four generations removed from food and then, you know, five generations. And we're just going to keep getting further and further and further. And I actually think that our society is going to be a bell shaped curve. Mm -hmm. And right now we are truly at the peak of being the most disconnected from our food we've ever been. I think going back to COVID, it changed so many people's lives about like, Oh wait, this is like the first time I have stepped foot in a grocery store and stuff has been out. Or this is the first time they're telling me that there's like a shortage or I need to pay attention to this. And it's like the first time we had to like, rethink about food again in a long time, you know, it kind of just became this like mindless thing we did. And I think we're coming off of that, that time wanting to be more reconnected, which is really, really cool. Um, from both points, right? Like it's really, really cool for the farmer and rancher to be like, people are interested in us again. Like, Hey, we exist. This is so cool. You want to know what we're doing? And I think it's really cool for the shopper to feel more informed and like have purchasing power and just feel like, almost empowered when they're in the grocery store again, like to be reconnected and have a knowledge base and an understanding. And I think we're coming off of generations that want to be connected to their food. And so I'm hopeful that that will just carry down to like the next generation after them and the next generation after that. I mean, there's people that are like, you know, homesteading and hobby farming and getting a milk cow and they're like just getting reconnected. And I don't see us coming back from this connection point we're at now to be just more, even more disconnected. And so I think we're going to get back to a place where like food and agriculture is like reintegrated a little bit more back into society.
0: Yeah. I hope so. I see that too. And I can, I can understand that for sure. So ag wasn't the dream for you originally. (laughs) Do you feel like it's the dream now?
1: Yeah. Like I said earlier, I, um, I feel really content on, our ranch. And I don't think contentment is actually an emotion. A lot of people get to feel, I think people feel like happy and joy and all these things, but like, I think content is like a really beautiful place to be in your life. Um, one thing I think we've lost touch on a society is nature and time outside. I think for a long time we focused on food and working out and that's what, you know, makes the best healthiest bodies and the best healthiest minds is like what we're feeding and how, how much we're working our bodies out. And I think we've totally lost sight of like what time in fresh air does, and what time seeing the sunrise does, and what, you know, like time and energy in, you know, nature versus concrete does. And so I just know that I am happier and healthier in this kind of rural lifestyle. I mean, I would give anything to have a Costco by me again. <laughs> I am three hours from a Costco. So I'm not, you know, and I would give anything to have a good restaurant to get like dressed up to and go to on a Friday night with my husband for a date. Like I absolutely miss some of those things that I had at my fingertips when I was living a very urban uh, lifestyle in Montana. Uh, I was living in Bozeman, which is like a very cool, hip town in Montana. And yeah, I absolutely miss those things. But there is a component, I think, to rural life that is cliched as it sounds, it is a little bit more of a rat race. And I do think it disconnects us from some of those important things that are core. We need as humans, which for me personally is nature and time outside and more space and, um, a little bit slower of a lifestyle. I mean, we work really, really hard, but it is not, I feel like the pace you can fall into when you're in a city life. And so I just know, I think for me personally, I could live in a city, there's things I love about it, but I just don't think at the end of the day, I would be as happy, mm-hmm. generally happy as a person. And so I'm very grateful to get to live in, as odd as it sounds, rural Nebraska and have this lifestyle. Um, but also, I guess, you know, I'm married to someone that kind of affords me that opportunity to travel and and, and does kind of indulge in those other things that I like where um, I, get, I guess I get the bol- best of both worlds, I feel like a little bit.
0: Do you ever feel like your identity is ag? Yeah. And I think it's easy to
1: fall into that. I think there's actually a spectrum of ranchers and farmers that ag is truly their identity almost to a default where you're like, you don't, you could leave the ranch or farm. Like you, yeah. you could do certain things where maybe this lifestyle isn't so all consuming and it's everything, you know, that you live and breathe by, um, And so I think you have to be careful where you fall on that scale of like how much time and energy do I invest into this operation? Because again, I mean, we have three boys. And so our hope is that maybe one boy will want to take this ranch over, you know, when my husband and I don't want to anymore. And so it is like you you are building something very important. And so I think that's another thing. It's like easy to get sucked up into like working all the time or trying to improve all the time or thinking about it all the time because there is that meaning behind like, well, the next generation is going to care for this. Like, why would we not give it our like absolute best every single day while we can, you know, Mm -hmm. but to what extent, you know, there are dairy farmers that have literally never left their dairy farm because they have to milk two times a day, you know, and it's like, how much of yourself do you sell and give, um, into what at the end of the day is truly just land and animals. Right. You know, it's just like hard to detach that meaning when the land and all animals could also mean like, the next generation's, um, job and what they're doing. And then, you know, my great grandkids, my great, great, great grandkids could literally be living on the same land, caring for the same animals, you know, or generations later, like genetics of the animals that my husband and I cared for. So it's like this, I don't know, it's this weird place to like, not lose yourself into it and maintain identities outside of it, but to also like understand that it's like really, really important at the end of the day too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like it's hard to be a woman in this space? Yeah, this
1: would vary on who you ask because I do, I mean, going back to less agriculture is less than 2% of the population. Right. And then within that females are right around, I think like 35% of what make up the agriculture industry. So we're looking at 35% of 2%. Um, so it's pretty small, right? Um, Mm -hmm. so it's definitely a minority and, it can be hard, um, to be anyone who is a minority knows it can be hard to be kind of the outlier in whatever it is you're doing. Um, I have always had very supportive, um, and encouraging males in my life. Um, my grandpa, my dad, and now my husband have all been very supportive of females being very involved in the operations. And I didn't go to school for ag. So I wasn't like, a female student, you know, a female intern, like I didn't, was never put in those situations where I could have maybe had discrepancy against me or, you know, I mean, I've been a female in an all male room now for agriculture, but I feel like that's a little bit different. You know, I'm a 36 year old woman. I feel like I can handle my own a little bit more than I could have maybe being the 21 year old female in the room of all males. And so I never was really exposed to some of those, but I know there are women in our industry who have been. And so I always hate to be like, no, it's been like rainbows and butterflies and sunshine for me. (laughs) And absolutely no discrepancy. And I don't know what women are bitching about, you know, because I recognize that there are women in agriculture that have had a really hard time being like, no, no, I'm the, I'm the sole operator here. Actually, my husband works off the farm and ranch. You know, I mean, there'll be like seed sales that come. They're like, let me talk to your husband. And the wife will be like, I I plant, I make the decision. You know, it's like, there's still some of that stereotype where they're like, let me talk to the man on the farm Mm -hmm. and ranch. And I know there are women who have to battle that every day. I personally don't.
0: Natalie, thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you for giving us like a glimpse into your life in this space. I have 9,000 more questions for you, but <laughs> we can like <laughs> chat later. Um, but please let everybody know where they can find you and anything else you want to share.
1: Yes. Yeah, so if you're listening to this, you are probably a podcast person. So if you're interested in our podcast, Discover Ag, you can find it on all the podcast platforms. And like I said earlier, we our, uh, every Thursday podcast. And we basically take any headline you could see and think, what does that mean about food and farming? And we talk about it on our podcast. And then my social channels, um, are, um, Instagram and Twitter are kind of my two main ones. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, and it's just under my name, Natalie Kavoric, And so you can find
0: me there. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a blast. Thank you. This has been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel, 58ember.com, or find us at 58 Ember Media on socials.